Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right. Uh, last week, Brad spoke to you uh, about Mark 11, 1 through 11. And I just want to recap that real quick because it's really important when we look at moving into to the next part of the chapter. Um, at the end of, of chapter 11, in verse 11, uh, it, it says this, that Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. You remember there was a big fanfare when he entered the city that uh, there were cries of Hosanna and excitement and palm trees and or palm branches rather and, and there was so much anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah um, but then verse 11 happens and, and it seems kind of different I don't know it, it says that he enters the temple and what sounds are recorded there what what things are taking place there we don't, we don't hear cries of Hosanna. We don't really hear or see much of anything going on. Uh, but it's a jarring contrast, I think. Jesus has entered a city to a, a lot of excitement and praise. But then when he, um, when he arrives at the center of worship, literally the, the center where they, would, where they would worship and offer sacrifice, when he arrives there, there is no welcome for him. And that, that's important. So there's a jarring distinction between Jesus' reception into the city and his reception into the temple, Uh, but then I think it also serves another purpose of being a sort of calm before the storm, Uh, maybe like a a soldier surveying the field of battle the the night before and knowing what's about to take place. Uh, There's a certain quiet and calm and anticipation of of, uh, big things to come. And so that's where we come in with verse 12 and, and through 25, which I'll read in a second. Um, before I do, though, I, I want to let you know that, that the way Mark writes this section of Scripture is very helpful. It's, it's really good. It's cool to see how Mark puts his thought into how he's going to explain things. Because he writes in, um, I don't really know what the technical term for this is, he writes uh, as if he's making a sandwich, and, and the way he writes, he's got two pieces of bread, like any sandwich, and then, and then in the middle you've got the bacon, lettuce, and tomato, right? So when you, write, when you make a sandwich, the point of eating a sandwich is not to consume bread. The, the point is that you would have the bacon, lettuce, and tomato, but having bread is necessary to actually make, to, to convey the bacon, lettuce, and tomato to your stomach, to your mouth, right? So, so the bread here in this, in this text uh, is this particular narrative which stands out in all the scripture, especially in the Gospels, in which there is a fig tree that is not bearing fruit. Uh, and, it, and Jesus, uh, by the end of the story, has, has cursed the fig tree and, and it's withered away and shriveled up and dead. And then in the middle of that, sandwiched between these two halves of that narrative, you have Jesus enter the temple again. But this time we hear sounds, this time we see what's going on, and it is just as jarring as as we were given to believe. So let me read the text. On the following day, when they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. 
for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What is happening? What what any of these things any of these things have to do with each other? Well, at first we, we see in, in the first few verses this fruitless fig tree in leaf out of season. And and it's important because that, like I said, sets us up for what's to come. But but here you have this this tree and, and it's bearing it's got all these leaves on it. I have a fig tree in my backyard and it does have leaves on it right now, but there's not a whole lot of fruit. But I can still see some. But when Jesus sees this fig tree and goes up to it expecting, because of what the fig tree is, is showing, expecting that he'll be able to receive something to eat, and sees nothing, it makes him mad. That sounds kind of petty of Jesus, because it's a fig tree. It's out of season. But the point here is, is, is not that we should pity this tree, the point is that the tree which was made and created to do one thing and is, and is even, even putting out the vibe that it is in fact doing what it is made to do is not. And a, and a tree that isn't bearing fruit when it, when it says that it is isn't really fit to, to take up any more space than it already is. So, so Jesus says, may no one ever eat of you ever again. It's important too that the disciples hear Jesus say this. Because we'll see later, another group of men hear Jesus say something very similar. And so the disciples, they hear this this curse, which is also very rare in in really all the New Testament, but especially in the Gospels. When we think of miracles, we think of resurrection, we think of healing, we think of eyes being opened and people being able to walk. But here, the miracle... Is, is that Jesus is speaking a word that actually destroys rather than creates. And that, that itself should stand out to us. Why? And why is Jesus doing this? Why does he feel so strongly about this in order to do something so out of the norm for what is usually taking place? So then, Jesus enters the temple. 
And, and what it, this is often referred to as a cleansing, where Jesus is overturning tables and throwing chairs, but we can't really call this much of a cleansing. It, it doesn't sound like a cleansing. When Sigourney, my wife, tells me that our house needs to be cleaned, I, that's not what I think at first, that we're going to throw everything out and destroy the place. No, Jesus, he, he deconstructs the temple. He, he sees there this false impression of religion without prayer, without faith, just as intended. You, you notice Jesus points out the, the purpose for the temple. He says in verse, uh, which one is it? He says in verse 17, Isn't it written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That's a, that's a quote from Isaiah 56, 7. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers. See, what's going on in the temple here is nothing out of the norm. It, it was nothing that was against Jewish custom, even. What, what's taking place there is you have money changers. You have people selling animals for sacrifice. You have people buying animals and There's exchange of money and there's busyness. To walk into the temple in Jesus' day would have been a lot like walking into the stock market. There would have been nothing but but movement and busyness and people exchanging and and yelling and talking. and, And yet, the temple is more than just a place for sacrifice. And Jesus, he sees a, a disconnect here. And so so what Jesus sees is is not faithful turning to God, but, but rather an industry almost of forgiveness and, and religion. He sees the exploitation even of people's guilty consciences and religious impulses. Sacrifice is good, and the people of Israel were called to do that, to atone for their sin. And yet what's taking place here is, is, not, is not that. But, but it's something that has taken that and made it into almost a, a, a commerce of, of industry and busyness and, and lifelessness. Even, even the poor are being exploited here. You, you see pigeons for sale. Uh, poor, the, the poor would take pigeons and they would, uh, that was their sacrifice because for the poor to afford anything more was was really unexpected and, and not possible for many of them, and so they would sell pigeons. And, and again, it's like everybody's being involved. Everybody is, is caught up in the, the rush and the rattle and hum of the temple. But, but its original purpose, its intent to be a house of prayer, a place of worship, is not, is not at all what's happening. And, and so Jesus is able to refer to it, according to Jeremiah 7.11, as a den of robbers. He refers to it as an outlaw's hideout. When you think of outlaws and, and robbers, you, you, think of, you think of a certain self-reliance, a, a certain doing whatever it takes at whatever cost to get what I want. This is the nature of the temple in Jesus' day. This is the place that did not welcome him when he entered the city. And so when he speaks these words, the Pharisees, or excuse me, the chief priests and the scribes, they respond in a way that is very fitting because they hear him say these things and the chief priests and scribes hear him, just like the disciples heard Jesus speak of the fig tree and instead of, instead of listening to him, they, they rather 
seek a way to destroy him because they fear him. The whole crowd is hearing his teaching. What, what the disciples heard Jesus say of the fig tree is not unlike what the, what the scribes and the chief priests hear Jesus say of the temple. A curse. These are not words of blessing. These are words of indictment. And so then, as Jesus and his disciples leave the temple, as they go back to Bethany where they're staying for the week, he, he and the disciples notice again the fig tree. But this time the fig tree, it doesn't have any leaves at all because it's completely dead. It is withered to the root, dead at Christ's command. And this is a very real warning then for the temple, for, for the people of God, but for us today. And it should cause us to, to think, and it should cause us to wrestle a little bit with the implications here. The one time that, that it's recorded, or I think it's the one time, that it's recorded that Jesus does something miraculous, but not to build up life, but instead to destroy, the, the one time it's recorded is in the context of lifeless religion. Meaningless deeds and activities and busyness done all for the sake of God. Even, to some degree, according to the Old Testament commands. In that context, the blessing that was intended that the temple would be a house of prayer for all nations, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles and all people, that they would be able to come in and pray and seek the Lord. That blessing, that intended blessing, has now become, by their opposition to it, a curse. Because of their false impression of fruitfulness and religiosity, but yet their lack of real, sincere, earnestly seeking the Lord and real, actual faith, the blessing becomes a curse. And so I ask you and and I ask all of us, how will we rightly respond to God then? If the temple is not the prototype for how we should should live, how will we respond to the Lord? How how do we approach him? What, What does it look like to love and serve God? See, the fruitlessness of this fig tree was cursed. And the fruitlessness of the temple was cursed, but not for a lack of busyness or even a lack of adherence to the law. It was cursed for deceptive and hollow religion. The temple is likened to a leafy, figless tree, busy but empty and lifeless. And so the the center of worship then has been dismissed as a sham, the, the commonly accepted place where worship happens, and this is the way that it's done, is dismissed as a counterfeit, as not the real thing. In fact, as opposed to its original purpose. Which brings about some questions for us to consider. I ask, um, why, why are we here? Why are we here at Crosspoint? Why, why are you here? Why are you here this morning? Why, why do you come to church here? Why do you worship here? Is Crosspoint or Christianity um, 
a business transaction where, where you, I don't know, in one sense maybe where you find, find clients maybe for actual business, but maybe, maybe Crosspoint, maybe Christianity, maybe this is a place for you to find your spouse. And that, that's why you come here. Maybe, maybe this is a place to, uh, to find identity or belonging. A group of people to gather around you with the same interests. What, what makes for a good Sunday? What, what makes for a good Sunday morning service? Is it, is it dictated by the number of songs that are sung or the length of the sermon or the number of verses referenced? What do, you expect of, what do you expect of others, of other believers? What, what are your expectations for them, that they would have a full calendar of, of Bible studies and things going on, they'd be at all the prayer gatherings, maybe, or, or that they would lead a Bible study of their own? Are they saying and doing the right things according to your perspective? But I ask, is forgiveness of sins a matter of buying and selling as it was in the temple? Is it a matter of tithing or attendance or joining a church, reading enough, doing enough, sacrificing enough, whatever that may be for you? Is that what this is? Is this a transaction where you do something and and then something else is guaranteed to happen? where you act a certain way and God has to respond to you with favor, where you do a certain thing and show up and you've done your deed, you've done what is expected of you as a Christian. I would encourage you to look past whatever fig leaves you you, you may have sprouted and ask yourself whether or not you are actually bearing fruit. It's very easy to deceive ourselves. But one way we can deceive ourselves is to take this and think that when I say fruit or when I say examine your life for fruit, I I mean only that you should look and see if you are doing good deeds or if you are busying yourself with the things of religion or devotion or or what have you. Because I, I don't think that that's the answer. Praise God, that's not the answer. Jesus here is calling us to turn from lifeless, empty religion to faith. And so then he says, in in verse 22, have faith in God. Jesus beckons us to have faith in God. Not to do more. Not to continually busy ourselves with more good things and more activities, but to have faith in God. And that, that is a very comforting word. You see, Christ is an unexpected Messiah. When he entered the temple, um, he began to clear away, to overturn, to, to move all these tables and chairs, because where all this commerce and busyness was taking place was in the very courts where it was expected that instead of these things, the Gentiles, the nations, would be able to gather and to pray and to seek the Lord. And yet, there's no space for them even to do that. Christ is an unexpected Messiah. He clears away 
for the most alienated from God, even you and me. And so then, because of this, because of this good news, because of who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish, that he would unite people to God, that he would draw us closer to him through his death for our sin, we must be alert, lest the rattle and hum of religion fill the house of prayer. Both in our church, in Crosspoint, we must must be vigilant. Are we robbing ourselves or each other of joy by the expectations and the the humdrum, I guess the humdrum sort of um, routine of of just being a Christian and being part of a church? Are, Are we robbing one another of joy? Are we, are we actually propelling ourselves further away from true faith in God by, by giving ourselves more and more things to do? We also have to be careful and alert that, that, that the emptiness and lifelessness of religion would not happen in our own hearts as members of the real temple of God as building blocks in that temple, according to Peter. So then instead of hollow religiousness and lifelessness, we're called to faith in God, which Jesus points to as being shown, especially through prayer. And so he says in in verse uh, verse 22, Have faith in God, truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is Jesus' answer. He sees the temple, he sees the lifelessness of the temple, and and Instead of giving them more to do, he directs them to the right, the right antidote, the right solution, which is faith in God, trust and dependence on him, and, and especially in a manner that leads us to pray, to commune with God, to speak to him candidly, asking him to bless us, asking him to guide us, asking him, but ultimately turning to him for all things. And so Jesus, he, he references mountains, which is a bit hyperbolic language. The, the intention is not that we would actually move mountains. But instead that we would ask God to do big, even to our minds and abilities, impossible things. And he says to do this without doubting, without blindly hoping, but confident in God, and, and I think confident in his promises. In verse 24, he says, and this is what I really want to focus on now, he says, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Think about that. What does that mean? That's, that's an incredibly, incredibly great thing to hear from Jesus. 
ask. Turn to God in faith. Ask. Believe. Don't doubt. It will be yours. Believe you've received it. It it will be yours. And I, I think a good approach to all of Scripture is to take it at its word. To to very real, really, earnestly take Jesus here at face value. There are different genres in Scripture, and there are different ways we have to read Scripture because of the way it's written. We know that to take poetry literally would be foolish. Not that poetry is built on imagery and, and alluding to things, but, but when we see this here, when we see Jesus and his recorded words, this isn't hyperbole like when he was speaking of the mountain being moved. This is a very real statement. And, and I think that, that we can take this and not be afraid to, you, to, to hear this scripture and be encouraged. I think it, it, for us, oftentimes, we're, we're clouded by cynicism. And, and when I read this, honestly, when I see this verse, my initial reaction is to say, yeah, but what? But what? But, it can't be just that easy. It can't be that simple or that straightforward. And we'll, we'll get to, as we go along, we'll talk a little bit more about what this means. But I, I think the first thing I want you to hear when you hear this verse is, is excitement, is good news, is something that should embolden us when we pray. That we can come to the Lord with anything. That we can approach God the Father through Jesus with our prayers. That we can communicate with him without buying or selling pigeons. That we can come to him in prayer and ask confidently that he would bless us. That he would guide us, that he would shepherd us. This is, this is a very emboldening truth. And we can pray for all kinds of things. Prayer itself is, is a blessing in this way that we can communicate with God and speak to Him and have our prayers answered. And, and so we, we, take it at, we take Jesus at His word. We, we also need to read Scripture in light of itself, in light of Scripture. And so it's in the Scriptures that we also read in James chapter 4, 3 through 10. He says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose what the Scripture says? He yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so James gives us some guidance here. When we pray, um, 
to pray with wicked motives or selfish motives, those are prayers that are not going to be answered in the way that, that Mark eleven twenty four speaks of. When we read John fifteen seven, Jesus encourages his disciples to abide in him. Let me read this word, this phrase to you. Um, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. See, there again, we, we have another pointer here, another landmark. And, and so we were able to read Mark eleven twenty four also aware that, that it is necessary for us as we pray to also abide in Christ, to abide in his word, that he would abide in us. Prayers uttered outside of that context will not, not bring about anything. Reason itself suggests that, that to pray for sinful things or wicked things or to pray with a sinful or wicked motive is not necessarily included in whatever, as Jesus refers to it in, in 11.24. That when Jesus says whatever, he doesn't mean a very universal, all-encompassing whatever. That whatever you pray for, whatever your motive, whatever its end it will be done. No, we, we know that God won't do anything that contradicts himself, that he won't do anything that disagrees with his will. He won't do anything that offends his holiness. But we're called to pray. We're called to ask him for whatever. We're called to trust and have confidence that he can do whatever. 1 John 5.14, I think is helpful on this point. It's here that John says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Ask according to God's will. Pray according to his will. How do we know God's will? How do we know what to pray for then? The knowledge of God's will comes on rare exceptions. The knowledge of God's will comes through his scriptures. We know what God's will is because he tells us. And so then we, we know when we study the scriptures that holiness is something he desires for us. And so we pray and ask him that he would cultivate in us holiness and he will. We pray and ask that he would give us patience. And we trust him and we have confidence that he can do this thing, which is incredibly difficult to fathom that God would be able to do something in our very hearts. And he will. He will. This is the confidence that we can come to him in prayer. We're talking about an undoubting faith that is grounded in the surety of God and his will. A faith which rests on God and his promises, but not a rubber stamp or um, a rub of the lamp for things not definitely his will.
we're not talking about merely wishful thinking when we talk about praying to God confidently. We're, we're talking about very real confidence and assurance in God and, and who he is, what he has said he, he desires to do, the promises that he's made. We can approach him with very real confidence. Jesus himself gives a, a, another qualification here at the end of, at the end of Mark um, 11, verse uh, 20, 25. He says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. When we pray, forgiveness itself is, is another characteristic that, that we must bring into our prayers that we must be forgiving as we also receive the forgiveness of God when we pray. And so when we read verse 24, we, we read it and we can take great joy and boldness from it. We can be very confident when we pray and we can approach God in prayer. Unlike the people of the temple who were buying and selling pigeons and, and trading and bartering and, and, and changing money and the, the busyness and the industry of, of all the things that they were doing, Unlike that, we can approach God confidently. We can approach him ourselves through Jesus. We can approach him asking for whatever according to his will. And that, that, is, so, that is such good news. I want you to, I want you to understand that. How exciting and, and encouraging and uplifting that is. But there is a way to take verse 24 and to misappropriate it. And that, that's why I say when we pray, it should be with confidence, but not as though faith is a rubber stamp ensuring whatever we would ask or demand of God. There are so-called pastors, men and women, who, who say that the gospel is essentially a matter of having enough faith to have and guarantee a prosperous, healthy life. And they take verses like this and they so distort them that they don't mean anything according to what Jesus is speaking here. But a gospel that is so conveniently centered around providing all that you want materially, physically, emotionally, especially in a fallen world where sin taints everything, For that to be accomplished by a poor, crucified, and sorrowful Savior is a lie. That is a sham. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not access to your best life now. No matter how much faith you have. That's not the gospel. But there's no hope there anyway. There's a difference between boldness and arrogance. And when we read verse 24, we should be emboldened. But it's possible to be bold before God, to ask him for things that are mountain-sized, and to trust him. It's possible to boldly come before God through the blood of Jesus, but also humbly submit to his will. 
It's possible to be bold with God and also very much dependent upon him for everything. Arrogance, on the other hand, is demanding. To be arrogant in prayer is to ascend the throne of God ourselves and to make him our servant. We know that when Jesus was on earth, he he did serve his disciples. He did wash their feet. He, He did bless them in that way. But when we come to God in prayer, he, he's not our errand boy. And he, he certainly is not bound to do anything we would ask simply because we have faith. So then in our prayers, who submits to whom? Analyze yourself. Think about this. When you pray, who, who is submitting to whom? Are you submitting to God or are you expecting him to submit to you and and the things that you want, that you pray for. To reduce verse 24 to a formula of faith um, is really to put faith in faith and not in God at all. And so if your unanswered prayers cause you to assert and cry out before God, but my faith, I, I had faith. Why haven't you answered me? To point that out is not to trust in God, but to really trust in yourself and in your faith. It's often said that faith moves mountains, or that this is a reference to faith that can move mountains, and I I disagree. I I don't think faith can move mountains. I, I think God moves mountains, and by faith, he works on our behalf according to his will. And so then, consider with what boldness we can approach God by faith in Christ. At the end of of Mark's gospel in chapter 15, he says in verses 37 through 39, as Jesus has been crucified, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, when Jesus died, the the curtain at the temple was torn. And Mark, who's writing this, I, I have to imagine, is thinking back to the episode we just read about in which Jesus enters the temple and throws everything out of order. Through Jesus' death, the, the curtain, access to God, That is made possible by him and him alone, which is how we are able to pray and and come to the Lord in faith and and ask him for things, ask him for big things. To pray and and ask that he would change our hearts or the hearts of others. To pray and ask that he would bless his work and his mission in this world, even through us. We are able to pray and, and ask in Jesus' name. Because Jesus has made the way possible. It is through Jesus' death that our sinfulness is forgiven and our prayers heard. So Christ is the hinge on which all things, but especially our prayers, turn. Not our faith, not what we would demand of God or how confidently we would come to him, but but rather Christ, he is the one through whom our prayers are answered. 
And so then we can turn to the Lord in prayer, depending on him, confident in his power to do all that we ask or imagine, according to Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. In fact, in, in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, the writer says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can draw near through Jesus with confidence. And so, as we were saying earlier, it really is a privilege to come to God in prayer. It really is a privilege to be able to come to God in faith. To, to trust God, to depend on him. This is a blessing bought by Christ. It's one that we should avail ourselves the use of all the time. That we can earnestly seek the Lord and that we can earnestly ask him for things. The people in the temple knew nothing of this. As they bought and sold sacrifices, as they exchanged and made forgiveness possible, They had missed its entire purpose, that that the temple would be a place where people can approach God without fear and with confidence, draw near to him through prayer. All of this, as Jesus says, is within the context of a forgiving and forgiven heart. And forgiveness really is the beginning of our own faithfulness to God. And to demand anything of God, or to, in fact, to demand forgiveness, or to expect forgiveness from God without actually being forgiving ourselves is as faithless and manipulative as the temple itself was. This is the gospel. Jesus' answer to the temple and to the busyness and to the religiosity was not more things, but his answer to them was faith and dependence on God in Christ. His answer was turning in faith and trust to God, asking him for all things. And trusting him for for all things, and especially our forgiveness. So, If you're not a Christian, because of the busyness of religion and the turnoff that that is, and that is is a real one, do you see the, the truth of the gospel? Do you see the rest that comes from all of the busyness that we can manufacture for ourselves to do, things that we can do to to please God or to make him bow down to our wishes? Do you see that faith and trust in him and turning to him through Jesus is is a much better path? I hope you see that. If you're a Christian and you are weary and you are tired and you find that, that even coming to church or reading the Bible or whatever it may be is a is an exercise in futility for you? Be encouraged. Let me encourage you. Turn from your busyness. 
turn from the habits that we create for ourselves that, that we sometimes forget the original intent of. And turn in faith to God. Turn in faith and trust to him, to his work, to Jesus' work on the cross. Rest in him alone. And, and actually take Jesus' advice and pray for that. Ask that the Lord would work in you a joy for the gospel. And ask it confidently. Because we know that joy in the Lord is something that is according to his will. We see that in Scripture over and over again. That he desires for us to love his Son. To find peace and rest in him. Pray for that. Pray confidently. So Christ directs us all to pray. To commune with God, not as one more activity to perform, but as the fruit of a life that is faithful to God. Let me pray. And I'll ask the folks in the band to come on up. Father, I, I, uh, I admit that for me, my default is to busy myself with things that would um, make me feel religious or maybe even worthy of your love in some way. But, but Father, I, that is the very thing that Jesus calls a curse. I ask that you would give me, that you would give all of us faith. That you would give us faith in you. That you would draw us to your son, that you would draw us to yourself by your son. That you would give us the confidence that Jesus speaks of here. That we would be so familiar with your word that we would know how to pray more and better that we would seek things more according with your will and less in accordance with our own sinful desires. But that we would come to you boldly and confidently, assured of your love for us and your desire to give good things to your children. Forgive us our sins, but especially forgive us the sin of unbelief and cynicism. Where we fear coming to you with anything because we're afraid you'll say no. Or we don't even really think that you are at work in this world at all. Because you're very much at work here. I pray that you'd be at work among us this morning. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.